According to his promise, we are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found by him in peace, spotless and blameless, and grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Our growth comes through the Scriptures. Turn to Matthew 18. Matthew 18. I'm a little bit lazy today, actually. This is my only Bible class for the day. We've got a guest speaker coming in tonight with a missionary report. So, looking forward to that. I spoke to Jim Dumas yesterday afternoon, and he was finalizing some other details. And, and uh, looking forward to that very much. Jim Dumas, correct, from Kiev, Ukraine. He works with Jim Myers over there. He's a single man, has a uh, two-bedroom apartment in Kiev, and always keeps that second bedroom available for guests. He's the permanent hospitality man there in Ukraine. So uh, when pastors come through or other Bible teachers and folks, uh, it's pretty common that you stay with, with Jim Dumas. And that's at least the two times I've been there, I've stayed with Jim both times. All right, Matthew 18, we uh, are looking at the 90 and 9 in verses 12 through 14, and then we'll move on to look at corporate discipline this morning in verses 15 and following. Sometimes it's referred to as church discipline, but I'm going to call it corporate discipline in the context of our study today. Verse 12 says, What do you think? If any man has a hundred sheep and one of them has gone astray, does he not leave the 90 and 9 on the mountains and go and search For the one that is straying, if it turns out that he finds it, truly I say to you, he rejoices over it more than over the ninety-nine which have not gone astray. So it is not the will of your Father who is in heaven that one of these little ones perish. All right, and that's our text. Thank you. And now we're fully loaded with coffee and we're ready to teach. That is amazing. Thank you. All right, let's open with a word of prayer and then we'll get right to our study, shall we pray? Heavenly Father, we do thank you for the truth of your word and the privilege and blessing that we have this evening to assemble together. Father, we pray for your hand of blessing upon our study that you would set aside distractions, give us eyes to see, ears to hear, and a heart to understand. And we thank you in Jesus Christ's name. Amen. Did I say this evening? I did, okay. In that moment of silence, I was listening to that fan. And it was bothering me. They just serviced it and put, the new, and put it up there, but the... Uh, yeah, that's the old one back, yeah. I'll ha- after class, I'll check the settings. We should not be listening to it at the moment. It's supposed to have a quiet mode where during class, we don't hear it, and then when class is over... You turn it off, and then it goes into the high fan, uh, high fan mode. The fact that we have a high fan at the moment is troubling. Okay. In any event, it's 10:04. Let's get to the class. How about that? Matthew 18. We are dealing in point D, the 90 and 9. And this, if you have the overall outline, this is under main point two, Matthew's events. We have a series of events in this episode that will take us through Matthew, Mark, and Luke. We're going to start off with simply Matthew's events because uh, Matthew records the most uh, detail. And then we will supplement it under point three with Mark and Luke's additional items. There are two things that Mark and Luke bring up, and we will uh, look at those under point three. But for now, we're still under point two. And uh, we have the 99 to wrap up and then corporate discipline. 
After that, we have 70 times 7. And then we have the parable of the laborers or the parable of the forgiveness here between these slaves and the idea of settling accounts. And we'll look at that when we get to that point. For this morning, though, 90 and 9. And the principles we gave last week. This message is also given in Luke's parable, triad of Luke 15. If you're familiar with Luke 15, it's the chapter that's typically called the prodigal son, for example. There is a parable triad in that chapter, and it's the same parable told all three times. Whether it's a lost sheep, or it's a lost coin, or it's a lost son, the principle is the same in all three parables. So I call it a parable triad of Luke 15. And we will cover that in the Perean ministry under Perean ministry episode number 23. It's coming up actually in uh, quite some time. It's likely that the Lord delivered this message repeatedly. In other words, it's not a discrepancy in our Bible that Matthew records it here during the Galilean ministry and Mark records it during the Galilean ministry and Luke records the uh, 90 and 9 sheep uh, message uh, later in the Perean ministry. That's not a contradiction if in fact the Lord delivered it more than once. And it's likely that he delivered it repeatedly. That we understand, according to John 21, that the Lord was presenting a shepherding emphasis to the men that he was training. The uh, whole application there in John 21, do you love me more than these? Tend my sheep, feed my lambs. We know that the Lord was focused on shepherding and he was trying to convey that to the apostles before his death. And so uh, if anyone asks, you know, this appears to be a contradiction. When, When did he give this 99 message? Did he give it during the Galilean ministry like Matthew and Mark say? Or did he deliver it in the Perean ministry like Luke says? Which one is it and which one's wrong? You can say it's both and neither's wrong because all Scripture is God-breathed and profitable and uh, both are true. The question, what do you think, and the manner in which it is asked lead the disciples to only one possible answer. When he says, what do you think? And then the way it's phrased with, does he not? Does he not leave the ninety and nine on the mountains? When you phrase a question like that with, does he not, right? It's, it's almost indignant. It really insists on a particular question, a particular answer to the question. We can do the same thing in English. Um, if, uh, uh, oh, just give me an example here. If, uh, hmm. All right, somebody asks uh, something in the Bible and says, well, you know, where, where in the Bible is the, uh, is the Ten Commandments found, right? And I say, oh, well, that's, that's in Exodus chapter 20. And they say, no, I don't think so. I think it's in Haggai or something. Then I might get real indignant, right? And say, well, am I not the pastor? And what does that mean? If you phrase it that way, it's really a leading way to phrase the question. It means that, yes, I'm the pastor, and what are you even asking for? See, and when I don't know the answers, I ask Ethel. (laughs) And and she bails me out. But, no, literally, at the last Deacon's meeting, she helped me out in the chapter in Jeremiah. I was about eight chapters off. And she said, oh, no, she told me what chapter it was in Jeremiah. So, the question, where he poses it directly to them, says, what do you think? So that's like pointing a finger. You can't get away from that. And he's not going to let him off the hook. What do you think? And then when he phrases it in this way, does he not? 
leads you to the only one answer. And, and as I'm reading, these are English idioms and English expressions, but the New American Standard did a wonderful job putting this verse into this kind of phraseology with the idiom to convey what happens in the Greek when you have these undeniable answers, and that's what happens here. So uh, there is only one possible answer, and the answer is yes, of course. He goes and he finds that missing sheep. Point three, humanity may be content with a 99% retention rate, but God the Father's standard is 100% safe and secure. Humanity might be content with 99%. I'll, I'll be the first to admit it. I'm, I'm happy with 99%. I'm happy with 90%. I'd be happy with, you know, there's some cases I'm happy with 50%. It just depends on what you're talking about. Okay? We're, we're accustomed to making do with something that's not perfect because that's the world we live in. We're imperfect people in an imperfect world, and sometimes you just make do. You know, it's not the greatest, but it's what it is. You know, I, I'm not dazzled with the uh, gas mileage on the Mustang, but you know what? It's better than the gas mileage on the Suburban. You know, so, you know, could there be better things out there? Yeah. How did I go there? I don't know. <laughs> well, it's the whole idea of, of, of a relative standard. And everything's relative, really, in the human experience. And we can grow content. We can grow content. See, and here's the thing. You and I, when it comes to our spiritual growth, you and I can get content. And that's a problem. Because if we grow, if we get to a point where we think we are mature enough, or we've grown enough, or somehow we've arrived, here I am at ultra super grace stage four or whatever, and I say, hey, I'm in spiritual maturity. And I get content and say, I don't have to study quite as hard. I don't have to hit as many of the Bible classes. I can get more spotty in my study. No, I can't. See, the Father's not content with 99%. When, when it's all said and done, 99% is imperfect. And that's, that's alien to our human nature, where we like 99%. No, 100%. That's God's standard. The parable picture is a wandering believer. Some people try to take this as someone who was never saved. Some people try to take this as uh, this. Uh, they try to view this as a metaphor. They try to understand the parable in, in a context where the person was never saved to begin with. And, and that really breaks the metaphor. The imagery here is a uh, the, the sheep is the same kind of sheep that all the other sheep are. He's just one out of a hundred and he's lost. He's he's wandered. He's. He's been led astray. The vocabulary there is planao. And the only difference between the lost sheep and the 99 not lost sheep is that he's lost. He's elsewhere. He's not where he's supposed to be, but he belongs with the other 99. He's a part of that flock. He's a part of that, that group. And so we don't picture this as an unbeliever. Uh, we, this is a picture of a wandering believer, somebody who truly belongs in the fold. And because he's out there, the shepherd is going to take steps to bring him back. And so we have the verb planao, and that's something we want to guard against. In the New Testament, we have the term planao. It tends to be a red flag. It's a warning. You and I are not to be deceived. We live in the intensified stage of the angelic conflict. There is a lot of falsehood that's out there, false teaching, influences of the world, and so forth. We are not to be deceived. We are to be well taught and not led astray. <coughs> Leaving the 90 and 9 on the mountains does not risk them in the man's absence. I used to think that. This, this passage, when I was a kid, this really used to bug me. 
Because I thought, well, what happens to the other 99? Well, he's out there looking for that one. You know, again, human thinking. I'd be happy with the 99. All right. Because if I go and I, if I spend all night long looking for that lost guy, well, then I come back and what happened to the other 99? Where'd they all go? And I say, wow, I got my lost sheep back. Hooray, hooray. The other 99 got eaten while I was, while I was gone. All right. And then I figured out that, you know what, the 99 aren't just abandoned or left unattended or somehow uh, vulnerable in his absence. And we looked at the sheepfold concept with the doorkeeper from John chapter 10, verses 7 through 10. And that's, that's vital as well. Let, let's grab that one and then we'll be, I think, up to speed with where we were a week ago. John 10. And I just want to go here again because this is such a powerful shepherding chapter. Truly, truly, I say to you, he who does not enter by the door into the fold of the sheep, but climbs up some other way, he is a thief and a robber. We have the same truth today in our culture and so forth. If he's got a key and he's coming through the front door, he probably owns the place. He belongs there, right? But if it's three o'clock in the morning, he's got a mask over his face and he's coming in through a back window somewhere. um, Chances are he doesn't belong there. Okay, he's not not an owner. He's a thief and a robber. But he who enters by the door is a shepherd of the sheep. To him the doorkeeper opens. See, not just anybody walks into that sheepfold. There's a doorkeeper who controls the access into the pen. And uh, the sheep hear his voice and he calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. When he puts forth all his own, he goes ahead of them and the sheep follow him because they know his voice. And... Uh, I think I mentioned last week that there could be multiple flocks all in the same pen for the night. And in the morning, only the sheep that belong to that one shepherd will follow him out the door when the door is open. They know their shepherd's voice. The rest of the sheep just kind of hang out until their shepherd shows up. And then it's their turn to go out. And they do go out. They have to go out because they have to go out to feed. They have to go out to the pastures. They have to go out where they can eat and drink. They're not going to eat and drink where they are uh, for the night. That's where they sleep. That's where they rest. And in that confined pen, in the confined area there, they'd consume all the, all the grass in short order. They would just denude the whole thing before you know it, especially with all those flocks combined. So they, that's not where they feed. That's where they sleep. And they go out into the pastures to feed. And then they go back in at night in a place of safety uh, for the night, also in a confined setting where fewer uh, guards can keep an eye on them, that kind of thing. You always need more more watchfulness out there in the open than you do actually inside inside a pen. All right. And this is why we have the picture of the door and the metaphor of going in and out. Some people really struggle with the in and out thing because they think this is a picture of salvation. And they go, ooh, they don't like that in and out language of salvation, right? I don't like the in and out language of salvation either. Salvation's a one-way door. You're in and that's it for all eternity. So in and out, like this passage speaks of, cannot be a salvation picture. And if you understand the uh, nature of shepherding in the ancient world, I think things get a little bit more clear. Verse 9 says, I am the door. If anyone enters through me, he will be saved and will go in and out and find pasture. That's the purpose for going out is eating during the day and then coming back in at night. Then we get into the shepherding principles in verse 11. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. The aspect of shepherding is that it's an application of sacrificial love. That it's not about you. It's about the sheep and it's about their benefit. 
He who is a hired hand and not a shepherd, who is not the owner of the sheep, sees the wolf coming and leaves the sheep and flees, and the wolf snatches them and scatters them. Why does he flee? Because he doesn't care. He has no love. He has no caring, no investment, no concern for the sheep. They're not his. He's simply a hireling. He flees because he's a hired hand and not concerned about the sheep. I am the good shepherd, and I know my own, and my own know me. So this here is our picture of shepherding, and this addresses what we're looking at in the, in the parable. Bringing back the lost is a prime shepherding activity. Bringing back the lost is a prime shepherding activity. And from Psalm 23 and from Ezekiel 34 mainly, John 10, we look at the principles of shepherding and we realize that there's quite a bit to it in terms of shepherding a flock. Some of the other prime shepherding activities include feeding, watering. He makes me to lie down in green pastures, so there's a provision of rest. He leads me by the still water, so there's water. Um, there's the, he prepares a table in the presence of my enemies, so there's food. There's, uh, in Ezekiel, there's binding up the broken, healing the sick. Those are absolutely necessary. Bringing back the scattered, prime shepherding activity. Now, where the metaphor breaks down is when it comes across in, t- in terms of people. So let's look at 1 Peter 2, 25 and make some observations there. 1 Peter 2, 25. <coughs> How long does cedar season last? That's right. <clears throat> Sometime before next year, I'm going to have a subway constructed from Jollyville to here. And I don't want to go outdoors from Halloween and through the end of January, maybe. All right. First Peter 2.25 for you were continually straying like sheep. He's not talking to sheep, though. He's talking to people. And we realize that sheep is a metaphor, it's a picture, and that the reality, though, applies to people. You were continually straying like sheep, but now you have returned to the shepherd and guardian of your souls. So we understand that the shepherding activity that we view in historical terms or we view in animal terms, all right, is a picture, but the reality is that shepherding is the tending of souls. Shepherding is the tending of souls. Whether it's a pastor in a local church, that's a shepherding application, it's the tending of souls. Or if it's the shepherding application within marriage, the responsibility that husband has to tend his wife's soul. Husbands and wives are heirs together of the grace of life, and there is a shepherding responsibility there. Uh, Parents to children. Is the shepherding of a soul and the activity there. You have returned to the shepherd and guardian of your souls. Now, I want to observe just two things here with this. All right. First of all, you were straying. That's what the sheep do, right? They wander off. It's the parable here. Sheep wanders off. Human being wanders off. You may not wander off literally, but as far as your soul is concerned, you're off. Okay. And bodies can be seated in a local church for months and years after the soul is already off 
at least in the mental attitude is concerned, right? Okay. Now, in the parable, the sheep goes away and the shepherd goes and gets him. Picks him up, carries him back. It seems rather involuntary, <laughs> right? The shepherd does not go out to the sheep and say, oh, pretty please, come on back. It's dangerous out here. It's scary. There's wolves. You want to be back with your 99 buddies and you'll sleep well at night. Come on, pretty please, pretty please. No, the shepherd goes out there and there's a reason why there's a hook at the top of his staff. That hook is to grab the, the sheep and forcefully, against his will, bring him on back. Now, when we deal with people, though, it's a little bit different. And it's interesting, the shepherd and guardian of your souls has not sovereignly and involuntarily and against your will grabbed hold of you and forced you into this flock. Interestingly enough, the vocabulary here, the term that's employed, is an active verb in both cases. You were continually straying as an active verb. You accomplished that activity. But now you have returned is also an active activity. You did it. You wandered. You came back. You have returned to the shepherd and guardian of your soul. So there's an emphasis in this text that when you take shepherding out of the metaphor and put it into the reality, put it into the spiritual function of the ministry of the word of God in a person's life, that the shepherding has to take place within the scope of the volition of the people involved. See, and if someone wants to leave a church, they're gone. And you can't grab them back or make them come back or force them to come back. And particularly if they're, if they're out for doing carnal things. Maybe they left the church because they're out doing carnal things. You want to bring them back while they're doing their carnal things? Maybe they need the divine discipline to wake them up. And part of the divine discipline is being away from the shepherd. So there is a distinction between the metaphor and the spiritual reality. In the metaphor, the shepherd coerces the sheep. In the spiritual reality, the shepherd prays for the sheep. The shepherd and guardian of your souls. Now, the big clue there to that that tips us off to the fact that it's a shepherd and it's a prayer activity is the function of Jesus Christ as the shepherd and guardian of your souls and recognizing that it's the function of Jesus Christ as the intercessor. Whoever liveth to make intercession for the saints. That's how he shepherds. And that's how we shepherd. So different applications of it there. All right. Now that's not, of course, I hope that made sense. I'm not denying sovereignty. I'm not denying what God does in his, in his plan. But I am saying, though, that there are two active verbs there with respect to the people involved. All right. So bringing back the lost is a prime shepherding activity. And in terms of local churches, in terms of human shepherds, there, are, there is, of course, the good shepherd, and then there's the human shepherd, and uh, one of us is omnipresent, the other one is not. And trying to chase people all over the world and find out, well, why aren't you in church, and what are you doing, and uh, how come your volition's not what it used to be, and, and all of that is not the role of the earthly shepherd. All right, back to the parable then in Matthew. Matthew. 
That Jeremiah 40 is an incorrect reference, and I intended to fix that last week, and I failed to do so. So I'll look that up and make sure it's fixed by next week. Matthew 18. Rejoicing more is not a license for wandering. This is not an excuse. We do find out that if if it turns out that he finds it, if it turns out that he finds it, maybe he doesn't. Maybe the shepherd does not find the sheep. Or maybe the uh, pastor does not see the church member return. But if he does, truly I say to you, he rejoices over it more than over the 99 which have not gone astray. There's reason to celebrate more for the one that comes back than for the 99 that were never out in the Thule's. All right. Why? Let's look at Luke 15, because this, I think it gets more vivid when you're talking about people instead of sheep. I mean, really? Okay, you got the sheep back. Great. Happy. You're going to kill it someday anyway. Right? But when it's a son that you have back, now, to me, that communicates more happiness. Because the son comes back. And and here, too, I think, again, if it was an animal out there in the woods, the father would have gone and found him. But it's a person. And he's involved in carnality. He's off uh, in the big city and he's uh, chasing the loose women and all this other stuff's going on. Father's not chasing him out there. Father stays where he belongs. And he watches from a distance. I do notice that. It's not that the father doesn't care. He, um, he does care. He does love him. I read in verse 20, He got up and came to his father, but while he was still a long way off, his father saw him. While he was still a long way off, his father saw him. That tells me that the father was watching. He was at the boundary of his property line. He was watching from a distance. All right. And felt compassion for him and ran and embraced him and kissed him. And the son had this great big speech he'd practiced. And uh, he didn't even get to finish it. Because verse 21 is really only half the speech that he practiced. The rest of it was, you know, make me as one of your hired men. But he couldn't get that far because the father cut him off. And the father said to his slaves, quickly, bring out the best robe, put it on him and put a ring on his hand and sandals on his feet and bring the fattened calf, kill it, let us eat and celebrate. Now, here's the explanation. I think this this describes what we're looking at in our parable. For this son of mine was dead and has come to life again. He was lost and has been found. And they began to celebrate. That's reason to celebrate. Now, the other son was never lost. The other son had never departed. The other son was never as good as dead. And so that's the difference between the son who never departed and the son who departed and returned. Same difference between the one lost sheep and the 99 that were never lost at all. Now, the older son was in the field and he gets his feelings hurt because he comes back and he hears music and dancing. Can you hear dancing? I guess so. You can hear music, and if they stomp loud enough while they're dancing, I guess you can hear dancing. All right. He heard music, and maybe he saw the dancing. And he summoned one of the servants and began inquiring what these things could be. And he said to him, well, your brother came back. In verse 28, he became angry 
was not willing to go in, and his father came out and began pleading with him. But, and now, see, now, isn't this interesting? Because the, the prodigal was willing to come back and came back. This son is not willing to come in. He's back, but not in. Does that make sense? Back, but not in. And he's not willing to go in, but the father came out and began pleading with him. And he answered and said, look, and here's the whining in verse 29. Verse uh, 32 comes the explanation, or verse 31 is the explanation. Son, you have always been with me, and all that is mine is yours. You were never lost. You were never gone. And the truth is, is that the rejoicing uh, is, is increased in the one that's returned, but because it was unnecessary in the one that was gone. Does that make sense? All right. But we had to celebrate and rejoice. It's an obligation. If you fail to, then you're not fulfilling the, the role that the Father has for you there. For this brother of yours was dead and has begun to live, was lost and has been found. So anyway, there is a greater rejoicing. Of course there's a greater rejoicing. But you don't want to have to see the... the, the you don't want to go there in order to rejoice. That's what, we're, that's what we're trying to say here. It's not a license for wandering. Just like in Romans 6, the increased grace is not a license for more sin. All right, you're familiar with that? Romans 6, verses 1 and 2. See? So, you don't want to be a total rebel. Go out there and live in the world and, and get in all kinds of trouble so that when you return to fellowship, then your parents will be happy. Right? <laughs> no. It would have been better off if you never went wild to begin with. For then you will have always been present. See? You will have always been present. And rather than the, than the uh, situational rejoicing would have been the continual fellowship and presence. So rejoicing more is not a license for wandering. Romans 6, what shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin so that grace may increase? That's how chapter 5 ended. As sin reigned in death, even so grace would reign through life. And so, hey, so that the transgression would increase, where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. Yeah, let's just go commit 55 more sins before, before lunch. How about that? Anyone want to beat that? Somebody want to do more than 55 sins before lunch? Well, the more you sin, then you can confess it and you'll be forgiven more. Maybe I can only handle 20 sins by lunch. And you can handle 30 sins by lunch. And we both confess at lunch. Can't we say the grace was greater for you than it was for me? No, what you're doing is you're perverting grace. All right, you're perverting grace. So what shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin so that grace may increase? May it never be. How shall we who died to sin still live in it? And that's the, the picture of this older brother. He, was, he had the position. He never lost the position. He was already in that estate. All right, one of my favorite hymns is not in our hymnal, but the 90 and 9. One of my favorite hymns. Are you familiar with it? There were 90 and 9 who safely lay. It's a wonderful hymn. John sings it occasionally as a solo. And uh, there's a hymn story behind it. Elizabeth C. Clefane, or Clefane, I don't know how to pronounce that. There were 90 and 9 that safely lay in the shelter of the fold. You know, I should have put some music here. We could have sung this or something. But one was out on the hills away, far off from the gates of gold. Away on the mountains, wild and bare. Away from the tender shepherd's care. 
Then uh, verse 2, Lord, thou hast here thy ninety and nine. Are they not enough for thee? <laughs> That's the human question, right? Come on. You got ninety and nine. Who wouldn't be happy with ninety-nine percent? The Lord's not. Are they not enough for thee? But the shepherd made answer, This of mine has wandered away from me. Yeah, I've only lost one, but that one was mine. And although the road be rough and steep, I go to the desert to find my sheep. But none of the ransomed ever knew how deep were the waters crossed, nor how dark was the night that the Lord passed through ere he found his sheep that was lost. Far out in the desert he heard its cry, it was sick and helpless and ready to die. And then the question, Lord, whence are those blood drops all the way that marks out the mountain's track? They were shed for one who had gone astray, or the shepherd could bring him back. And Lord, whence are thy hands so rent and torn? They're pierced tonight by many a thorn. And then the thrilling conclusion, but all through the mountains, thunder riven, and up from the rocky steep, there arose a glad cry to the gate of heaven, Rejoice, I have found my sheep. And the angels echoed around the throne, Rejoice, for the Lord brings back his own. That's a powerful, powerful hymn. And when John sings it, it's even better. Uh, there's a hymn story behind it. I thought I'd share it with you this morning. Elizabeth C. Clefane, or Clefane, was born in Edinburgh, Scotland. So what's the Scottish pronunciation of Clefane? Clefane? Okay. But grew up in Melrose in the lovely area of Abbotsford. Throughout her brief lifetime, she was plagued with illness and a frail body. Despite her physical afflictions, she was affectionately known to the townspeople as the Sunbeam. Elizabeth enjoyed writing poetry and has several of her poems published in a Scottish Presbyterian magazine entitled The Family Treasury. However, the majority of her writings appeared anonymously in this magazine in 1872, three years after her death in 1869. Miss Clefane wrote the text for the 99, especially for children, a short time before her death. It was published in a magazine called The Children's Hour. Five years later, the American evangelist D.L. Moody and Ira Sankey were in Great Britain for one of their noted revival campaigns. The story is told of Moody and Sankey riding a train one morning from Glasgow to Edinburgh to conduct a service in the Free Assembly Hall of Edinburgh. Sankey stopped to purchase a newspaper in the train depot, hoping to get news from America. As he idly turned over the pages of the paper during the ride, he discovered Elizabeth Clefane's poem. He tried to interest Moody in its contents, but the evangelist was too busy preparing his sermon. Figures. See, the, the Bible teachers are never any fun. It's the musicians that have time for that kind of thing. He tried to interest Moody. I read that. Okay, finally, Sankey simply cut out the poem and placed it in his pocket. At the meeting that afternoon in Edinburgh, the subject of Moody's message was the Good Shepherd, based on Luke 15, 3 through 7. There's a coincidence for you. Finishing his address, Moody turned to Sankey and asked him to sing some fitting solo. Sankey could think of nothing that was appropriate, then suddenly he recalled the little poem he had put into his vest pocket. Placing the newspaper clipping on the folding or, uh, organ before him and breathing a prayer for divine help, he struck a chord of A-flat and began to sing. Uh, note by note, the tune was given, and that same tune has remained unchanged to the present time. Sankey declared that it was one of the most intense moments of his life. He said that he could sense immediately that the song had reached the hearts of the Scottish audience. When I reached to the end of the song, reported Sankey, Mr. Moody was in tears and so was I. When Moody arose to give the invitation for salvation, many lost sheep responded to the call of Christ. During their campaign in Great Britain, Moody and Sankey visited Melrose. 
Uh, Elizabeth Clefane's two sisters were in the audience. One may imagine their delight and surprise when they heard their departed sister's poem set to Sankey's music and learned of the spiritual impact this hymn had in the furtherance of the gospel, even as it has, has had to the present time. In our hymnal, we have number 309, uh, Beneath the Cross of Jesus, I fain would take my stand. So Anyway, then the rest of that all gets into Ira Sankey and his background and things that happened there. All right, wanted to share that with you this morning. We have time to get a look at point E then, and we'll move on to look at the next stretch here in Matthew 18, corporate discipline. Remember, this episode, we're still in the same episode. We're still in Galilean ministry, episode 53. The disciples contend about greatness. And it started off in the early part of the chapter. They're arguing about which one of them is going to be the greatest. And then we have a series of messages that all address the realms of humility and the need for humility. From the boy that he brings forward to the, uh, the warning about the stumbling blocks to the uh, the message here on 90 and 9 is a message of humility. The shepherd had the humility to go find that lost sheep. Now we get to um, another humility application in corporate discipline. And I hope that we can leave. I think all too often we separate out this church discipline text as if it doesn't come in this chapter. As if somehow verses 15 through 20 was a chapter all on its own and wasn't nestled in the midst of verses 1 through uh, 35. Because even the passage that follows next about, about forgiveness is an application of humility. All, everything here in this chapter is about humility. Which is why the Lord was hammering these disciples with it over and over and over again because none of them were humble. They were all arguing about who was going to be the greatest. All right. So here's a follow-up, and it's a follow-up to a wandering sheep message. The idea being, of course, that the wandering sheep is what? It's a believer out of the will of God. So if your brother sins, go and show him his fault in private. If he listens to you, you have won your brother. See, the idea on the shepherd is that all of us have a shepherding opportunity. It's not just simply, oh, here's somebody out of line. Boy, I hope the pastor goes and rips into him. No, you have the opportunity, particularly if the sin is against you. And there is a manuscript question there, whether the words against you belong or not. But in any event, you have the opportunity. You're the one that knows about it. Presumably the congregation doesn't know about it. The two or three witnesses don't know about it. You're the one that's aware of what's going on. The objective here being you have won your brother. And the sheep is back, and we can rejoice. But if he does not listen to you, take one or two more with you. Now, you make one, and when you take one or two, that means you've ended up with two or three. And that meets the Old Testament requirement. So that by the mouth of two or three witnesses, every fact may be confirmed. This is a fulfillment of Old Testament application. This whole setting is a Jewish setting, and we're going to see that here, undeniably. If he refuses to listen to them... Them, that's the, two, the one or two you brought with you. He already has blown you off. But if he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. We'll have to work on this a little bit because people get confused here in this chapter. 
Is that Austin Bible Church? <laughs> no, it's just the church, the ecclesia, and we'll, we'll study that here today. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, now you'll note there's, a, there's an opportunity for repentance right there within verse 17. That it could say, well, let me back up, verse 15. And, and it might help if we put the flow chart back up. We used a flow chart once upon a time when we taught church discipline in, uh, in uh, 1 Corinthians. So verse 15, step one, you go to him one-on-one. Go to him one-on-one. And he might listen or he might not. If he does, you've won your brother and the discipline is complete. If he does not listen, then you go to the next step. All right? Where you take one or two more with you. You've got a total of two or three. But again, there is an opportunity for repentance. He may listen to the two or three and he may be restored and you've won your brother. If not... If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And here again, there is an opportunity for repentance. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. In other words, have nothing to do with him. Remove him. He does not belong with you. All right. So these are the steps along the way. Now, I've titled this corporate discipline rather than church discipline. I'm going to show you why. Point one. Although Matthew records, recorded these written words during the dispensation of the church, Jesus Christ spoke these words during the dispensation of Israel. That gets overlooked a lot. Although Matthew recorded these written words, and there's a huge debate about when was the gospel of Matthew written. All right, before 70 A.D. or after 70 A.D. or whatever. doesn't really matter for this morning's purposes. Whenever it was written, it was during the church age. It was after Pentecost. It was after Acts 2. All right, Matthew didn't record Matthew before the church age began. So he recorded these written words during the dispensation of the church. Jesus Christ spoke these words during the dispensation of Israel. I believe it was in the uh, late summer, early fall of 32 A.D., six months out from the crucifixion. We're very quickly coming upon the Feast of Tabernacles in John chapter 7, and that, uh, that locks us into the time frame, uh, seasonally speaking, uh, from this point forward. So we're, we're shortly ahead of that. So now here's the thing. Matthew put, put quill to papyrus, and he wrote down these words, including the term brother and including the term church. Matthew wrote down the word Adelphos for brother and the word Ecclesia for church. He wrote those words down probably years later in the church age. He wrote those down. But what were the words that Jesus spoke? So point A, Matthew's written word was Ecclesia. From 1577. That was Matthew's written word. But what was Jesus' spoken word? Now, we already dealt with this back in chapter 16. If you have your notes from Galilean Ministry, episode 46, Peter's great confession, remember, Thou art Peter, and on this rock I will build my ecclesia. I will build my church. And we asked the question then, did Jesus use the word ecclesia? Was he speaking about, well, was he even talking in Greek, first of all? 
talking to his Jewish um, disciples. You know, given that all 12 of them were Jewish and given that he was Jewish, it's not likely that they regularly conversed in Greek. All right. Assuming they all knew Greek, I think it's likely they all did. It was the trade language of the Eastern Roman Empire. But I think it's quite natural. You know, there's probably people here that speak Spanish, but I don't typically speak Spanish with you because I'm much more comfortable in English. It's our native language. All right, we had some notes in Galilean Ministry 46, Peter's Great Confession, with respect to ecclesia, as well as the term synagogue, the term synagogue. Ecclesia is not um, alien to the Old Testament. The Septuagint Greek text of the Old Testament used ecclesia many times. The idea of ecclesia is not alien to the Old Testament. The idea of the church as a mystical body of Christ, a body of uh, no Jew or no Gentile, but one body in Christ, everything you and I understand as the church, that is new. Okay? That was mystery unrevealed not to be found in the Old Testament. But the term was used. You bet the term was used. But what did it mean? And so we, we did a study on the time. What it meant was it meant assembly. It meant congregation. Like the assembly of Israel. The congregation of the sons of Israel. We'll look at some of the verses here in a moment. Also, interestingly enough, they translated the Hebrew term kahal. Q-A-H-A-L. Kahal. The Hebrew term. And a kahal was an assembly, a gathering. Most of the time, kahal... The Hebrew kahal from the Old Testament became ecclesia in the Septuagint, but not always. Quite a few times, Septuagint translators used uh, synagogue instead of, kah- instead of ecclesia. Another consideration is, what if he wasn't speaking Greek or Hebrew? What if Jesus was speaking Aramaic? The, the native language, the family language, the personal language of the day. It's debatable whether or not the common man on the street even spoke Hebrew. By the, by the first century, or whether they, they spoke Aramaic as their native tongue. Um, that's, if you were to ask that question 20 years ago, there was no debate. It was a settled matter. As far as scholars were concerned, uh, they were convinced that Hebrew was lost to everybody but the, the priests and the scribes and the, and the, and the educated classes that the common man on the street only knew Aramaic and he was dependent upon scribes and Pharisees and scholars and Bible teachers and so forth for Hebrew uh, understanding. In the, in the past few years, though, there have been some archaeological discoveries that have raised the question again. They're saying, you know what, maybe it's not so settled. Maybe Hebrew was more of a day-to-day language spoken and written and used in that time. So in any event, it, it is still an open question. None of us were there. We don't know. But... The uh, still we have to recognize when Jesus said, tell it to the church. He was not talking about the dispensation of the church. He was not talking about a body of believers gathered for the teaching of the word of God under the shepherding ministry of a pastor teacher. He wasn't talking about the church age. All right. And I'm not going to let you go to lunch today until you're clear on this. The church was a mystery not found in the Old Testament. People that try to blend that will use Old Testament uses of ecclesia to try to confuse things. If you really want to bore yourself to tears, read the Theological Dictionary of the New Testament, Kittle's 10-volume set. Uh, Volume 3, 
pages 518 to pages 526, all deal with this one very question. What word did Jesus speak when Matthew wrote down Ecclesia? Did he speak the Hebrew term kahal? Did he speak the Greek term ecclesia? Did he speak the Greek term synagogue? Or did he speak the Aramaic term uh, of kanista or kanishta? Yeah, kanishta. I should have put an H in there. Kanishta. What do they call the assembly in, in government today in, in Israel? Knesset. That's right. We have Congress. They have a Knesset. This is the term. Kanishta. Knesset. And that very well may have been the term that he used if he was speaking Aramaic to his disciples. Tell it to the Knesset. Not tell it to the 21st century modern Israeli Knesset. But tell it to the gathering of Jewish leaders. So point B. Brother and assembly were Mosaic Jewish terms before brother and church became ecclesiastical terms. And this is what I want to highlight because I think people ignore this. They, they, they look at Matthew 18 and they say, Hi, here's our great manual for church discipline. And it's not a church age text. It's in the Gospel of Matthew. Church doesn't begin until Acts chapter 2. It'd be like going to the Old Testament and say, Oh, there's a great church manual. Huh? From the Old Testament? Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John belong dispensationally in the Old Testament. They, were, they, they record events that took place under Israel's stewardship. So brother and assembly were Mosaic Jewish terms before brother and church became ecclesiastical terms. Leviticus 19, really verse 17, but I included 17 and 18. Uh, Deuteronomy 31.10. Let's look at those. You see, this whole context is Jewish. We've never had Gentile and tax collector used as a pejorative in a church age application. All right, Leviticus 19. Leviticus 19. I love turning to Leviticus. <laughs> Leviticus, I tell you, Leviticus, is, it's, a, it's a tough book. Tough to teach. I get twisted and confused and you kill what and blood gets poured where and what gets sprinkled where and the fat portion does what and the 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 kidneys do what and it just there's so many details and i uh, my head spins so the lord knew that and he knew that i was not to be born in the uh, as a levitical priest but in leviticus 19 verse 17 says you shall not hate your fellow countrymen in your heart you may surely reprove your brother. You might have neighbor there, but it's Achim, it's brother. You may surely reprove, it says neighbor. And see, to me, let me pull this up, because see, to me, the who's my neighbor question has already been answered. It's been answered in Leviticus. And... Um, the, the lawyer that just wanted an escape clause was, was just looking for a footnote or a way out when the answer was already in Leviticus. You shall not hate your fellow countrymen in your heart. You may surely reprove your neighbor. Really, the term there is brother. I'm just going to double check that, make sure I'm not misspeaking this morning. 
You shall not hate your fellow countrymen. And that's brother. Lo, tisna, and this is from the verb sane. We've had it in Psalm 119 a number of times. Lo, tisna, the psalmist talked about everything that he hated in Psalm 119. Lo, tisna, thou shalt not hate. Eth, achika, right here, your brother. And ach is a brother. Get off of yellow, and you'll see it. And ach, A-C-H, ach, start with an apostrophe, is brother. And the icha right there is your brother. That's the possessive pronoun for you. All right. So ach is brother and achika is your brother. You shall not hate your brother in your heart. Belivavaka right there. You may surely reprove your neighbor. Now this is not the term for brother, but this notice the way they parallel brother with neighbor. Your spot has got the same ka ending. Your brother, ka, your neighbor. Beneath the ka. So the question, who's my neighbor? Who's your brother? Who do you have the opportunity to minister to? Verse 18, you shall not take vengeance nor bear any grudge against the sons of your people. You need uh, further definition of who your brother is? The sons of your people. Your family. And we have our application in the church age, but they had their application in their stewardship, the sons of Israel, their people, their stewardship. But you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. So here we see brother parallel with neighbor and sons of your people parallel with neighbor. And we realize that we're talking about the same thing. So these were Jewish terms, Mosaic Jewish terms, before brother and church became ecclesiastical terms. If uh, this is why, this is why David and Jonathan had such like-mindedness. They were brothers. They weren't brothers in Christ because they weren't in Christ, church-age saints. They were brothers in, okay, in Moses, right, in Abraham. See, not all Israel is Israel. You can have two Jewish people and no like-mindedness whatsoever. David and Saul had no like-mindedness. Saul tried to kill David. But David and Jonathan had like-mindedness. They had because they, they, each of them had the fear of the Lord. Spiritual brothers. That's right. Both born again, regenerate, and in fellowship. See, that's the key. In fellowship. Saul was so carnal and out there, there's no fellowship. Remember, our fellowship is with the Father and with His Son. And if I'm in fellowship with the Father and the Son, and you're in fellowship with the Father and Son, then you and I can have harmony and fellowship with each other. It's the only way it works. So David and Jonathan were great spiritual brothers in the things of the Lord, not in Christ, but in spiritual realms. From different tribes, David was from Judah. And uh, Jonathan was from Benjamin, different tribes, but brothers, Jewish brothers, sons of, of uh, Israel, sons of Jacob. See, the sons of your people, your brothers. So this idea is not unique or new to the New Testament. It's not unique or new to our stewardship. 
And we don't just want to read in Matthew 18 and read the word brother and read the word church and say, ha, there's a church age application there. No, because they're, they're, they were Jewish terms long before they were became church age terms. Now, Deuteronomy 31.10 is where you see ecclesia. Is it what I was thinking of? Let me pull it up and we'll see if I can spot this. Twice in two weeks this has happened to me. All right. Um, Moses wrote this law and gave it to the priests, the sons of Levi, who carried the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord, and to all the elders of Israel. Now look, there's elders. I thought elders was a church age term. <laughs> Is any of you sick? Take it to the elders. They can pray. Yes, elders is a church age term, but it was a Jewish term before it became an ecclesiastical term for the church. And our understanding of the later one is largely um, built upon our understanding of the former one. Then um, Moses commanded them, saying, At the end of every seven years, at the time of the year of remission of debts, at the Feast of Booths, when all Israel comes to appear before the Lord your God, at the place which he will choose, you shall read... Oh, here we go. You shall read this law in front of all Israel in their hearing. Assemble the people. See, this is the assembling of the people for instruction of the Torah from Jehovah. That's where this is coming from. I had the right passage after all. Deuteronomy 31.10. And just for fun, let's go ahead and bring up a Septuagint. Just because we can. All right. When all Israel, verse 11, is 11 the verse I gave you in the notes? I gave you 10 in the notes. When all Israel comes to appear before the Lord, your God, at the place which he chooses, you shall read this law in front of all Israel in their hearing, assemble the people, the men and the women and the children. And here's ecclesia right here. It's a verb, actually, ecclesiazo, assemble, the people. Does this mean we have a church in the Old Testament? No. But it does mean that a covenant body of redeemed people gather together to receive instruction from Jehovah. All right? That's what the term meant. Let me see about... Other references in, yeah, ecclesiazo is the verb form. I think I clicked the wrong thing. Oh, how did that happen? All right, won't worry about it. So the term brother had that application. The term assembly, 
or congregation had that. We, we have it throughout. The congregation of the sons of Israel. The assembly of the sons of Israel. Before all of the assembly. Before all the congregation. Alright? The, um, the fact is, is that there were quite a few Jewish people that were racially Jews but didn't give a hoot about the congregation. They did not participate. We, we would call them today non-observant. They happened to be born in a Jewish family. They happen to have a culture. They happen to have a diet and a mode of dress. But they were not functioning in a spiritual capacity. They were not operating under the realities of their covenant or in, respect, or in true respect of obedience to the Lord. And they would not bother going to Jerusalem for Passover or Pentecost or any of the required feasts. They didn't uh, offer the temple tax. Like when, the, when they asked the disciples, or they asked Peter, you know, does, your, does Jesus not pay the temple tax? Quite a few didn't. See, if you're not religious at all, if you're totally secular and totally pagan, and living like a Greek, are you going to offer up the, the didrachma tax to that Jewish temple? Please. So, um, the idea here, though, of being cast from the assembly... The idea of what happens when you're put out of the assembly, when you no longer have those privileges of gathering together on Passover, of worshiping with the priests and the Levites, of celebrating together the covenant blessings of Israel uh, or the covenant blessings of Jehovah upon the nation of Israel. If you were devout, that was significant. Absolutely significant. That's why as a step of congregational discipline, it, had, it was so effective. All right. Anyway, um, Goodness, bit off more than I could chew this morning. Uh, one week from today, then we'll come back. We'll pick up on this again because we'll take you through the steps. We'll show the flow chart. We'll show the process on it. Um, and I'll find some additional uses of ecclesia that will help us to kind of get the concept there in the Old Testament so that we realize. I, I don't think you guys are confused at all, but you may encounter somebody who tries to tell you that the church was in the Old Testament and that nothing really changed you know, after Jesus, that, you know, the church today is spiritual Israel and blah, blah, blah. Israel back then was the Old Testament church and blah, blah, blah. And they have this blending of the two in a, in a confusion. And it's horrible. Absolutely horrible. I don't want you guys to fall for that kind of stuff. All right, let's pray. Father, thank you for this day and for the truth of your word and for the opportunity that we have to study. And I pray, Father, that you would open the eyes of our understanding and bless us to understand these messages of humility. Every paragraph in this chapter is on humility. And Father, I pray you'd be working on us to avoid the stumbling blocks. You'd be working on us to uh, minister to these little ones. You'd be working in us, Father, to seek and to search out the missing amongst us and be shepherds. And I pray, Father, that you would work in us, Father, to apply the humility aspect of being able to come alongside a brother that we see, uh, that we see not walking right. And it takes humility to do that. And I pray that we can do that with the humility that comes from from your grace provision. And I thank you in Jesus Christ's name. Amen.